Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. These next three episodes will conclude our annual conference content. We hope you enjoyed it, and we're looking forward to seeing you at next year's conference. For our program today, we were joined by Ms. Caitlin Penner. Currently, Ms. Penner is an urban planner for the New York City Housing Preservation and Development Office of Neighborhood Strategies, focused on the conversion of publicly owned vacant land to deeply affordable housing. She is also the co-editor-in-chief of the Hunter Urban Review, a journal that explores the newest topics in urban planning and design. Conventional methods to making housing more affordable have failed so far, and because this housing crisis is so complex, it will require more creative solutions. Caitlin is a master's student at Hunter College, where she studies urban planning. Her research focuses on vacant lots, the impacts of municipal austerity measures, and community resilience. She put together a fascinating presentation on innovative policies being tested around the world. What I found most interesting was her research on the city of Barcelona and the unconventional methods they have taken to restore equity within housing. I have to say, this is my favorite talk from this year's conference. Together, we discussed potential uses of vacant land, how local governments can better incentivize more equitable uses of housing, and some of the benefits of co-op and tenant-led ownership models. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. So my name is Caitlin. Um, I am a graduate student at Hunter in New York City, here in New York City, which is actually where I'm calling from today. But today I'm going to be speaking about some exciting things that other cities are doing in both New York and Barcelona, as well as kind of the potential new routes that we could take some of those initiatives, especially here in the United States. All right, so the first city I'm going to talk about is Barcelona. And to give a little bit of background on that and kind of where Barcelona is in terms of like land speculation and the housing market right now, kind of since the beginning of the 21st century, Barcelona has been in a challenging place. As folks may know, Blackstone, uh, one of the first countries that Blackstone got really deeply involved with in terms of buying up real estate was Spain. The impact of kind of private capital and uh, venture capital was slightly more severe in Madrid than it was in Barcelona, like mostly due to kind of the differences in government between those two cities. Madrid is traditionally more conservative and therefore kind of created a slightly more friendly environment for that type of speculation. But it was very, very prominent in Barcelona as well. And that led to a lot of kind of people having buildings bought out, people living in buildings owned by private capital. A lot of residents of cities like Barcelona and Madrid were squatting in vacant buildings that were owned by private capital because those companies were really kind of just sitting on them and speculating on them and oftentimes not even necessarily renting them out. Barcelona also has a very small 
Currently, this is something that's important to preface before I go into the rest of my presentation. Compared to most other European cities, Barcelona does have a fairly small social housing sector currently. Only around 2% of units in the city are social housing, but the real what makes Barcelona really exciting is that um, kind of unlike our keynote speaker, who my wonderful professor, Laura Wolf Powers, uh, who I know is in this call, had me read um, a book of for one of her classes, talked about like kind of the selling off of a lot of social housing in Europe, kind of the privatization of that. That certainly happened in Madrid. Blackstone has actually directly been involved with purchasing social housing units in the city. But in Barcelona, there's been a rather different approach. Um, the city has actually been directly involved in expanding opportunities to affordable public and social housing. And I think that that creates a very kind of important thing to for us to all be thinking about as we kind of battle a really challenging housing and perhaps more importantly, land market. The one other thing that's important to note is that Airbnb has also been a particularly large problem in the city. And as a result of that, um, Barcelona, I don't have a slide on this, but Barcelona have and don't know a ton about this, but I can try to answer as many questions as possible if folks have questions about this. But Barcelona has fairly effective protections against Airbnb that have been passed in the past several years. So in 2016, Barcelona released a plan to work directly towards a universal right to housing between the years of 2016 and 2025. And kind of that plan rested on four basic strategies, prevent housing emergencies and residential exclusion throughout kind of the Barcelona's government's reports, residential exclusion is kind of considered to be what we would consider maybe like chronic homelessness, just a general severe challenge in finding long-term sustainable housing. And kind of the strategies that they're thinking about to address that are curtailing evictions, helping people get access to permanent housing. This is one that I find, the second one, however, is a goal that I find really interesting and is a goal that is not something that I think we're talking enough about in an incredibly speculative market on both housing and land. So the city of Barcelona actually is making a direct goal to ensure proper use of housing, which their definition is, is that housing is essentially being looked at for its use value and not for its value as an asset. So as kind of time has passed, especially through the 20, 20th century and housing has become much more speculative and commodified and kind of debt has played an increasingly large role in financing both the construction and the kind of day-to-day -day operations of housing, especially multifamily rental housing in cities, it's become something that people see primarily as an investment um, and something to profit off of, not a place where like working people live. And I think kind of explicitly stating that the goal is to return housing to its use value is something that we should all be thinking about and is all quite important, especially kind of when we're thinking about the ways that how, while we can all talk about land and Georgism, I think it's challenging in such a financialized economy in a way that George wasn't writing about to really fully separate those two things um, without enacting George's policies. Um, kind of in our current situation, like eh, real estate has just become kind of such a big part of our daily lives. Um, kind of the next goal that they set was to increase the stock of affordable housing. Um, and explicitly, interestingly, they do note that that includes expanding the city's public housing stock by 8,000 units, 
um, which is another strategy that a lot of places have really turned away from. Um, and the final strategy is to improve and maintain the current housing stock. Um, but this is in some interesting ways that not a lot of kind of places that have tried to modernize or prepare an older and aging housing stock for a new generation um, have kind of attacked this problem. It's much more about decommodifying housing that already exists on the private market, as well as helping smaller homeowners make repairs that they need to make to make their homes livable through kind of public assistance. Oh, no. All right. Uh, so I'm going to go through a couple of like the really interesting strategies that Barcelona has taken now to kind of address this problem and address these challenges. Um, so the first one kind of really gets at the goal of preventing housing emergencies. Um, and it's through a program that is called APROP, um, which in Spanish means, I don't know how to pronounce that, but you can all read it. But in Catalan, it actually um, has a definition that is very close to uh, like approximate to. Um, and basically that is what the purpose of this housing is. This housing, APROP housing in Barcelona is often built in a prefab style uh, through shipping containers, which you can't tell through kind of looking at the exterior of this building, but it's designed to act as temporary housing for people who may have faced eviction or people that may be facing some type of other housing emergency where they no longer have a safe place to call home. Um, and the purpose of this housing, this is a brand new program. Um, I was in Barcelona in the spring and I was able to see this building, which is the first APROP to be completed. Um, the intention is for people to be able to live in these homes until they're able to find permanent social housing. So really what it does is it keeps people within the social fabric of their communities um, and kind of takes out a lot of like the trauma of gentrification and displacement by creating this safety net where people know that maybe this isn't a permanent home, but this is a safe place I have to live with my family until we can find somewhere that's going to work with for us long term. Something else that's quite interesting is that because of the free prefab style, the housing is rather um, quick to construct. Uh, this building was completed in four months and only cost and cost well under a million dollars, a million euros to build, which kind of in the current building economy that we have is almost challenging to think about. And it's an exciting kind of new approach towards keeping people rooted in their communities and providing more options to kind of the affordable housing crisis that people are facing, kind of this almost stopgap model of social housing. Barcelona has also done a lot in the past 20 years to expand uh, public housing. This is another building that I saw. I actually took this picture near the Santa Catarina marketplace. Um, this was a kind of plaza and general streetscape redesign that was done between 1996 and 2005. The social housing on this site was completed in 2005, but there's a lot of interesting and important design elements here that make this housing work, not just because it is public housing and is housing that people can stay in. It's also specifically public housing for seniors, which is something that is quite interesting with the design fabric of this community. So this building is 59 units, it kind of has this really nice curve shape. So there's a lot of natural light that comes into the building because they're kind of these large, differently sized windows around the exterior of the building. But that lets in a lot of light. Um, but really, perhaps more importantly, 
all the units are wheelchair accessible, which is something that we've definitely struggled with at, in public housing here in the United States. For example, at NYCHA, elevator repairs can take a god-awful amount of time. And if you don't have an operating elevator, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting into your home. But the building also really sustains a social fabric for the seniors that live in this building. It's located right next to the second largest public market in Barcelona, which from folks that I've talked to on the ground um, is a place where those the seniors that live in this building gather. It's a social space and it gives the, them this third space kind of within their, their immediate community. It's right outside of their door. And it's also located a four minute walk away from a subway station that to my recollection is ADA accessible, which makes it kind of easy for those seniors to get around the city. And these are just some other uh, recent build public housing programs that the city has completed. Um, as you can see, there's a lot of focus on maintaining kind of this courtyard outdoor space and really making these buildings livable for people. So now I want to talk a little bit more about some of the land kind of politics that are happening in Barcelona, as well as kind of Barcelona's much more recent um, kind of dipping of their toes into cooperative housing. Um, so I'm sure some of you have heard about this project before. It's gotten a lot of press. Um, this is a multi, I'm around 60 people live in this building. I believe it's around 30 units. It's a cooperative called Laborda. Um, and it's built, uh, it's a sustainably built co-op, uh, built kind of with a timber base to lower carbon emissions and kind of make the building process more sustainable. Um, and it's really, the city of Barcelona has also kind of engaged very intentionally in expanding its cooperative housing stock, which they're calling co-housing. Um, but the way that they've kind of taken this approach is really through kind of almost in an American context, merging co-ops with community land trusts. So essentially like the city will acquire this land um, or acquire a building because as I believe Josh Ryan Collins mentioned, there is kind of new programs of right of first refusal that allows the city to acquire property at, at a large scale. Um, and then either that land or that building will be leased to a cooperative for 75 years. This is kind of a new initiative. Laborda was completed, I believe, around two years ago. A lot of the other co-op programs that they've kind of begun to build out are either just being completed or have only been in operation for maybe two to five years. Um, so when I was doing research for this presentation, I did unfortunately struggle to find out kind of what the game plan is once that initial 75-year lease ends. Um, but it does create this level of accountability between the cooperators and the city to kind of retain that commitment to long-term, deeply affordable housing by the city keeping the land in trust in a lot of ways. Um, the site of Laborda is also rather interesting. It's a large, large, large area uh, that used to be kind of a series of factories. Um, and it's kind of become a community driven space. There's a lot of other kind of maker spaces and other kind of art spaces that are happening in the immediate area surrounding the building. And it it's just a really interesting and exciting project to think about what we could do if kind of cities were willing to make commitments towards housing people in a way that was sustainable in the long term for the people instead of being sustainable in the long term for the real estate industry.
This is another example of a way that the city converted a building into cooperative ownership. This actually was a building, as you can see on the right, the building was um, already in, as I'm sure you would assume, based on kind of the architectural styling, the building was actually already constructed and the city acquired the building because uh, it had been vacant for over two years, which uh, the Catalonian government has passed legislation allowing municipalities to do if either units or entire buildings are vacant for more than two years, the municipality will like issue a, essentially a warning to the landlord or property owner. Um, and if they're given a couple of months to remediate that and house someone, but if that doesn't happen, the municipality is able to kind of seize the property. It is not intentional. It's not intended to unfortunately be a permanent seizure. It's intended to be a temporary seizure, but in this case, it was a permanent seizure. I believe the landlord kind of just forfeited the building. Um, but this has become essentially the reclamation of private property toward for public good. Um, because this building is now was the first co-op in the city of Barcelona to be successfully completed. And now um, the kind of organization that it, uh, formed the co-op that is kind of running the building um, is working on kind of retrofitting it um, to be more kind of environmentally sustainable and kind of working on a green roof and other things that will help preserve kind of energy and other needs to keep a city sustainable. So now I'm going to move on to my second set of case studies. I'm very sorry. I'm assuming that this is taking longer than I intended it to, um, but I will try to go quickly. Um, so I am sitting here in on the Upper West Side, uh, Upper East Side, my apologies, wow, of New York City, um, one of the places where the most wealth imaginable in the world is concentrated. But as I think anyone who's on this call who lives in New York City can see, um, New York City is a deeply, deeply, deeply unequal place. Um, while people live in penthouse condos that get property tax abatements from the city, NYCHA says it needs $78 billion to repair its infrastructure. Um, homeless sweeps, which are, have become a way to kind of really heavily police uh, people in our city who don't have access to stable and safe housing, have kind of skyrocketed under our current mayor, as have um, rent increases from the Rent Guidelines Board, which is the body that's responsible for determining how large rent increases will be for stabilized buildings in the city. As folks may know, New York City has one of the largest um, still in operation rent control programs in the United States. But under Adams, those rent hikes have gotten substantially larger as Mayor Eric Adams is responsible for appointing all of the members of the Rent Guidelines Board. Also, the city has really no master plan or no real kind of thought into the, the way that the whole city is, the whole city's future is going to kind of play out in terms of urban planning. Uh, for the past several decades, all we've done is essentially complete piecemeal rezonings. Um, for example, under Mayor Bloomberg, there was the massive rezoning that I believe was alluded to under um, under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And under Bill de Blasio, neighborhoods like East New York and Inwood were rezoned. 
So kind of the first really exciting example that I want to talk about in New York is one that actually goes back a little bit further than um, kind of recent history. Um, so the Cooper, so Cooper Square is an area kind of nestled between the what we now consider to be the East Village and the Lower East Side, not too far from NYU, from folks who aren't maybe from New York City. But um, it was an area that Robert Moses targeted for uh, redevelopment. But kind of at the time that Moses was targeting this area for redevelopment, Moses was taking a lot of heat from uh, kind of community community organizers who wanted to have a fair say in processes of redevelopment. It is fair to note that kind of the people whose stories have been told are all white, um, whereas communities of color have also resisted under Moses for decades. But essentially in this community, um, Frances Golden, who is the woman seen holding the microphone. There's a great documentary that was released about her. Um, if it comes to your city, you should absolutely see it. Um, but essentially, they fought back for years against this plan that would have raised their buildings and their community to the ground. Um, and they worked with uh, a pretty well-known urban planner named Walter, Walter Thobbit, who wrote the book, How East New York Became a Ghetto. Um, to create an alternative plan for Cooper Square. And after decades, um, this fight started in the late 50s and the 1990s under Mayor Dinkins. Um, their plan was accepted and they were able to kind of get the city to rep make repairs on their homes, but also kind of keep control of that land. So what Cooper Square decided to do was separate the land from the buildings by creating a community land trust. So Cooper Square uses a very interesting and important model where they fuse two major social housing models, the Mutual Housing Association, which essentially is kind of like a amalgamation of co-ops that are operated to get under the same leadership. And a it's also slightly more, di uh, Mutual Housing Association is also slightly more diverse than a co-op. Uh, technically, there can be like a rental mutual housing, a rental building under a mutual housing association. Um, but so essentially the buildings are managed by the mutual housing association and the land is managed by the community land trust. And that creates a really important check in terms of the decommodification of this super now super, super, super expensive land in New York City, because essentially, if the members of the Mutual Housing Association wanted to sell off their units, it would be extremely hard for them to do so, not only because the, they'd also have to get permission from the CLT, but essentially, like, what are you going to do? Sell a building without the land under it? That's not going to work. So it really creates an important series of checks that have allowed this um, community land trust to operate successfully and preserve this deeply affordable housing for years and years and years. Even now today, the until I believe very recently, if not still now, uh, the price to buy a share in a Cooper Square building was $250. And a lot of their kind of residents are folks who are were formerly homeless like this is a pro this is a 
example of how social housing can work and how social housing can address the needs of people that are really in the deepest need of housing now. Um, it's also, while obviously it's not necessarily scaled to the entire city, it has acquired buildings in the year since its initial formation. And the city has actually actively asked them to work kind of with specific buildings, um, including, I, I believe it's called like Two Buildings United. There was a tenant union where there were pretty severe issues with the landlord and uh, Cooper Square is in the process of acquiring those buildings. So it it can be scaled. Um, it is obviously a challenge. Social housing, developing a social housing market under a capitalist economy with a strong real estate sector will always be a challenge. And that creates obstacles to scale in of itself. Obviously, I guess this, I kind of explained this already, but this is really how a community land trust works. The land is separated from the value of the building or the improvements um, on the land. And the community land trust will lease um, land to the other entity, uh, often for a period of 99 years. So I think it's also important to talk about kind of the cooperative housing movements that have happened uh, here in New York City. There have been a lot of tenants in kind of buildings that have faced really consistent abandonment, both from landlords and from generations of harmful policies that have like planned shrinkage that have been enacted in black and brown communities across the city. So tenants have come together and in certain circumstances successfully bought their own buildings. This image is from a story that was in the New York Times about um, tenants who are working with an organization called UHAB or the Urban Homesteading Assistance Board, which is an organization that really does help a lot of these individuals kind of get equity and get control over their building um, in the Bronx, a group of these folks in the Bronx. Um, but obviously this is really challenging. Uh, both land and property in New York is incredibly lucrative um, and landlords don't have too much of an initiative, a uh, kind of incentive to sell to tenants right now. Um, so there are possible solutions, many of which I got to talk about uh, with folks in my class with Professor Wolf Powers at Hunter uh, about uh, the economics of real estate development in the spring. Um, but those include the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which is a bill at the New York state level that would give tenants the right of first refusal um, if their landlord was trying to sell their building in a period of time to acquire the capital necessary to buy. The Community Opportunity to Purchase Act, which gives nonprofits and groups like community land trusts the right of first refusal at the city level and obviously cap to buy buildings, you need a lot of capital. We would need to create uh, pretty substantial pathways to financial uh, assistance for these tenants who are coming together to try and purchase these buildings. And this is I, getting to where I'm going to leave you all off. I'm very sorry. I feel like I talked for a long time, but um, my background is in the study of vacant land in a high market city, which is not something that we talk about very frequently. But another potential kind of solution for a city like New York, a high market city, you have a lot of potential infill sites that are being held not only by the city government, which is something that is a conversation that folks are having about land that's owned by like, for example, the housing and preservation department that hasn't been developed on for years. But there's also land that's been owned by speculators. There's land that hands that is being passed off 
at ever kind of increasing values, especially in gentrifying communities from one LLC to the next. Um, and I think as we've seen in a city like New York, especially through kind of living through the era of Robert Moses, um, things like eminent domain were used to seize property from people that had no power, pe low income folks in the city, immigrant communities in the city, black and brown communities in the city so that Robert Moses could ram highways through them. And that has happened even in more recent times uh, with the development of the Net Stadium in Brooklyn, Atlantic Yards. Um, that led to some eminent domain in predominantly Black communities as well. But there's not ever been a conversation about what actually qualifies as a social good or public good, which is what eminent domain is supposed to be used for. And in a city where people are actively facing the threat of displacement, uh, the cost of eminent domaining vacant land, potentially for the use of groups like community land trusts or groups like limited equity co-ops, or even for the construction of new public housing. Despite the Faircloth Amendment, New York has destroyed some public housing and hypothetically could create a limited number of new units. We have this land, but we're simply letting the rich and powerful continue to speculate on it. And in addition to solutions like a land value tax, this is interesting too, because it would actually place land, a resource that a lot of communities really need, um, in addition to money, obviously, that would be raised through an LVT, but land in the hands of communities who have been kind of ravaged by real estate throughout various times. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.